Genesis chapter 47. We're closing in on the end of this uh, great book. And we're again in chapter 47 where we were last week because we could be in this chapter uh, for a long time. But just one more week and then we're in 48. Beginning in verse 7, we're going to read down through 12, then we'll get to 23 through 31. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many of the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt. In the best of the land, the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded, and Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their descendants. Verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and a four-fifth shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you've saved our lives. May it please my Lord that we be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possession of it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob and the years of his life were 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. Jacob said, Swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. When Harry Truman was president, John Stennis came to Washington. He soon became the senior senator from Mississippi, and he was known throughout the capital as a man of great power. He was the head of the Armed Services Committee in the Senate. He also was a member of the Appropriations Committee. Every spending bill went through John Stennis, and he canceled many of them. He is one of the most powerful men to ever live in Washington, D.C., and what makes his 41-year tenure so amazing is today the Democrat Party would run him out of town on a rail. Stennis was a leading Democrat. 
and yet he was a defender of racial segregation. He mounted a vigorous resistance to Brown versus education. He voted against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. He voted against instituting a Martin Luther King Jr. Day. He supported the bombing of Hanoi. And in his 41 years in Washington, he made a lot of enemies, including the senior senator from Oregon, Senator Mark Hatfield. For 30 years, they clashed on the floor of the Senate. But on January 31, 1973, it all changed. Senate was going home from the Capitol late one night. He was right outside his house when two teenagers came and put a gun in his chest. They said, give us everything you've got. So he took out his wallet, gave him the wallet, took off his watch, gave him the watch, reached into his pocket, found 25 cents, gave that to them. And when he said to them, that's all I've got, they shot him in the stomach and the leg. And he was rushed to Walter Reed Medical Center. As the surgeons at Waddle Reed began to save his life through a 10-hour surgery, the news of the, mur- or the, news of the shooting uh, reached the media. In fact, it was all over the radio, and as he was heading home from the Capitol, that's when Mark Hatfield heard the news. As soon as he heard it, he turned his car around and went to Walter Reed. As soon as he got in the door, he noticed the switchboard operator, 1973, switchboard operator. He noticed that she was overwhelmed with calls. And so he said to her, I know how to run one of these things. Let me help you. And for the next eight hours, he fielded calls from all over the world. When daybreak came, he could see that the calls had subsided. So he got up to leave, but before he left, he said to the operator, my name's Hatfield. It was a pleasure for me to help you help a man that I so deeply respect. And with that, he walked out. Someone has said, when God measures a man or a woman, he doesn't put a tape around their head. He puts his measuring tape around their heart. Someone else has said, people really don't care what you know. What they care is how much you care. And when I read this chapter, I think to myself, boy, is Joseph amazing. He had every reason to turn his back on his father and his brothers. Think of all of the bad blood. Think of all of their lies against him. And yet Joseph doesn't allow himself to consider any of that. Instead of retribution, we see respect. Instead of arrogance, we see appreciation. Instead of justice, we see grace upon grace. And instead of limiting his love to his family... He pours out his love 
on all of Egypt. And in this way, he is just like Jesus, and we are just like his family. There are three things I want to underline this morning in this text that show us Jesus and show us us. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the perspective. Look at verse 9. Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Now, we've heard Jacob talk like this before. You know, it's amazing if you compare what he says here in front of Pharaoh to what he says in the very next chapter in front of his own son, Joseph. It's a total contrast. There's no comparison. Alexander McLaren, one of the great Bible commentators of all time, put it this way. There are two strongly different estimates of the same life by the same man. In other words, he's as inconsistent as you and I can be. When Barb and I first arrived in Somerset in 1984, we met a man by the name of Chuck Unseld. Chuck worked for Hercules Chemical Company in Clareton. One day his boss called him into the office and said, Chuck, we want you to be able to know that you can retire. I mean, here's a buyout package for you. After telling him all the details, he said to Chuck, I'll give you all the time you need to think about it. Chuck thanked him, walked down the hall, called his wife Betty and said, Betty, they say I can retire. What do you say? Betty said, sure. And he went back and in two minutes, he told his boss, I'll take it. The first week I'm in Somerset, he comes to my office and he says, you know, we've got a couple of people for you to see. I said, what do you mean? He said, there are a couple people in this church you really need to know, and are you ready? I want to go show you some of them. I said, sure, we'll go this afternoon. And so I drove, and he rode along, and I said as we headed to this woman's house, what's she like? And I'll never forget what he said. Without slightest hesitation, he said, she enjoys poor health. <laughs> Have you ever known anybody like that? Someone who can find a cloud in every silver lining? Well, she was one of them. Though she was married to a perfectly positive gentleman, though she had a lot of friends that looked out for her, though her children was, were healthy and thriving, she lived in a mansion on 30 acres in a very bucolic area near Somerset. From the first sentence she uttered, it was all about pain and discouragement. That's what we see Jacob doing. Look how he describes his life to the king of Egypt. Few and evil have been the days of my life. Now, maybe he's depressed by his surroundings. I mean, after all, he's in a city. He's seeing the splendor of Egypt. Maybe that makes him depressed. Maybe he wants Pharaoh to pity him. Maybe he's employing some oriental ethic that enables him to make himself inferior to the greatest, 
most powerful, most celebrated Pharaoh in all of the 3,300 years of Pharaonic history. But I doubt it. I think this is the old self-centered Jacob playing the victim. Look at how he describes himself. It's as if he's ready to die. And yet he's going to live for 17 more years. 17 years. If you've got kids, you know 17 years is a long time. And look where he is. He's reunited with all of his sons. Joseph's alive. They will live in an area that one Egyptian historian calls the richest, the most fertile, verdant land in all of the world. Not only that, when he dies, he will live only 33 years less than his father. When he dies, he'll live only 28 years less than his grandfather Abraham. Moreover, he's standing before a man who is ruling the nation and the world. And he's ruling a people whose average age is one-third the length of Jacob's age. And when he dies... He will have outlived this Pharaoh by 57 years. And yet all he can do is cry in his beer. Now granted, his life has been marked by trouble. He stole his birthright. He suffered the injustice of an uncle. He had a daughter who was raped. He lost his most precious wife. For 20 years, he believed the lie of his sons that his favorite son was dead. But that's only part of his life. He's so possessed with his own pity that he can't think of the other side of his life. And he can't read the room. He is the son of Isaac. He is in the line of Abraham. He has had more access to God than anyone else in the scriptures to this point. God's given him three visions of himself. He's seen two theophanies. He's wrestled with the pre-incarnate Christ. God has allowed him to reconcile with his brother. God's given him 12 sons. And after 20 years of believing a lie, God has given him the benefit of seeing that it was all a lie. Joseph is alive. He's let him witness the salvation of his family in the midst of a seven-year famine. He's been blessed by few other people in all of human history, and yet he's a whiner. Someone has said life is either long or short depending on where your eyes are fixed. If they're fixed on your pain and your heartache, it's good that your days are few. (laughs) 
But if they're fixed on God and his blessings, then you see your life as a series of godly good gifts. And here Jacob, all he can see is himself. He's standing before the king of Egypt and he's crying. In fact, everything he says here is jaded, except for one thing. He calls himself a sojourner, a pilgrim. He's just like Abraham. He's simply passing through and he recognizes it. I mean, think of this. In the midst of his poor, egocentric assessment of his life, he swerves into the truth. He says he's on a journey, just like you and me. Just like you and me, this world is not our home. Just like you and me, God is in control. And in the midst of a pretty poor perspective, he's able at the end of his two-sentence diatribe to swerve into the truth and say to the king of Egypt, I am simply a sojourner. Second, notice the principle. Look at verses 23 and 24. Then Joseph said to the people of Egypt, Behold, I have bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own. Do you see what Joseph's doing here? He's not only saving his own family, he's saving all of Egypt. What he's saying is one day the famine will end, and you will leave those slave cities where I've accumulated you for food distribution. You'll go about the whole land of Egypt, and you'll raise your own crops. He's assuring them of a future. He's giving them seed. What kind of future will it be? It'll be a fruitful future. Not only will they raise crops, but they will remember the king who made it all possible. Look what he does. He requires them to give back 20% of what they raise. He imposes a 20% tax for the government of Egypt. And this is the second time in the Bible where we see that people surrender what is theirs to someone else. In Genesis 14, Melchizedek comes out and meets Abraham after his great victory over the coalition of kings. And the Bible says when Abraham sees Melchizedek, he gives him a tenth of everything he has. Why does he do it? Because he knows Melchizedek is the incarnational representation of God. Abraham ties 10% of everything he has to the Lord because he knows that it's God who's given him everything that he has. But here it's not a tithe, it's a tax. It's a 20% tax to the government of Egypt. It's not a tax on everything they have. It's a tax on everything they produce. Someone has said, God prospers you not to increase your standard of living. He prospers you to increase your standard of giving. And Joseph knows what economic cycles are like. Did you know in the last 70 years... The United States economy has 120 months of recession and 720 months of growth. 
That's about a fifth of the time the nation is in recession rather than growth. And by the wisdom of God, Joseph understands that. Now, he could have taken advantage of the people of Egypt. He could have instituted a confiscatory tax rate. But instead, he institutes an enduring law that's based on gratitude, that's designed to produce resources in case the nation goes back into famine. And Joseph here is just like Jesus. Jesus said something to Paul that he never said in the Gospels, but Paul tells us what he said. You know what it is? It's more blessed to give than to receive. According to Jesus, loving God and your neighbor means getting your eyes off of yourself. It means giving rather than hoarding. It means sharing with others the fruit of your labor. Just as Abraham recognized that God is the one who gave him everything, Joseph recognizes that these people will be fruitful. And in order to save them from themselves and from economic cycles, he will continue to gather for a rainy day, for a day when the rain doesn't come. Third, notice the promise. Look at verse 29. And when time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I've found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. Do you see the change that's been wrought in this man over 17 years? It's no longer Jacob who's speaking, it's Israel. This changed man remembers the promise of God that God made to him at Beersheba. Do you remember what God promised? He said, you're going to go down to Egypt, but I'm not going to leave you, let you stay there. You're going to come back to the land of Canaan. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt. I'll go down there with you, but I'll bring you up again. Your son Joseph will close your eyes, and he will bring you back to the land of your father's. You see, Israel, Jacob, re remembers this. His eyes are no longer on himself. The whiner is turned into a winner. His eyes have shifted from himself to God, and he remembers what God said would happen. And so he asks Joseph to do something. Now, I would remind you, it's been 40 years since he asked Joseph to do anything. Forty years earlier, he had said, go see how your brothers are faring. See if things are well with them. And when he gets there, he finds out they're not well with him. Since that time, over 40 years, Joseph has done everything for his father without request. But now, 40 years later, his father asks him to do something that will ensure that the people of Israel will come back to the land of Canaan and be what God intends for them to be. He says, don't bury me in Egypt. No, what are, no matter what happens here, good or bad, don't bury me in Egypt because Egypt's not our home. 
Why does he say it? Because he remembers what God said to his grandfather. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God shows his hand. He shows he has one singular purpose. His purpose is to reveal his heart, the measure of his heart, to his people and to the world. He will make Abraham into a great nation so that through that nation, God might save the world. God doesn't bring them down to Egypt to kill them. He brings them down to build them. And after he builds them, he will not leave them there because he has a purpose. He'll not only bring them through the Red Sea, He'll not only feed them for 40 years in the wilderness. He will not only save them, but through them, he intends to save the world. Do you see this? It's never about Israel. It's about his purpose. Now, this is a very polite translation of the Hebrew. In fact, it's so polite, you, must, you may miss the meaning When his father says, put your hand under my thigh, that isn't what he says. That's not what happened in antiquity when such a promise was made. What he's saying to his son is, put your hand on my crotch. Put your hand on the place from which your life began. And by doing so, you will say to me that I swear on my life and on your life, Dad, I will carry you out of Canaan. You see, Joseph promises to do that because God has one singular purpose. It's not just to save Canaan and Egypt from famine. His purpose is to reveal his heart. His purpose is to save the world through Joseph's namesake, Jesus Christ. You know why? Because God's purpose never ends until it's fulfilled. You see, Yogi Berra was right. It ain't over till it's over. And Joseph proves it. That's true of Joseph. That's true of the nation of Israel. That's true of your life and my life. It's never over till it's over. And God is determined to use you so that others might be saved to the glory and the praise of his name. Think about that. Amen.